I am absolutely chuffed that people are starting to have a two-way conversation with me. I felt like I was alone there for about 70 episodes and all of a sudden uh, through some of the chat rooms and today I am here to serve you and answer as many questions as humanly possible within a reasonable period of time. Welcome to the Urban Property Investor. I'm your host, Sam Saggers, here to help you crack the code of real estate wealth. Today's show, another code cracker. We're going to dig into questions which are on your mind. Yes, this show has been built around questions flooding in from property investors. So I am pleased to do a show like this. I think This is actually the first show of its type within the Urban Podcast or Urban Property Investor Podcast series. So I am absolutely chuffed that people are starting to have a two-way conversation with me. I felt like I was alone there for about 70 episodes and all of a sudden uh, through some of the chat rooms, through some of the chat bots, Uh, We've been collecting some questions which are on people's mind and today I am here to serve you and answer as many questions as humanly possible within a reasonable period of time. As always, I think it is crucial when playing the show, play the show in double speed, get your life back and of course, if you are tuning in for the first time ever, wow, Where have you been all my life? You have missed out. But no, podcasts are evergreen, so you can go and listen to other past episodes, which are lessons on real estate. Hey, also, we are now pimping out Rafi on Instagram. So if anyone wants to follow a Gopnik dog, you can go to Rafi's own Instagram uh, account. And uh, that is Raffy Fuddy Duddy. Yes, Raffy Fuddy Duddy. So if you feel like uh, looking uh, and hanging out with digitally a happy dog, you can do that by going to Raffy Fuddy Duddy. Yes, we're trying to make Raffy as famous as possible. Uh, we think he's a bit of an entertainer as a Gopnik dog. And as such, I think. He needs to be your friend. So if you are a long-term listener and you know about Rafi the Gopnik dog and you feel like you want to be entertained once a day, we suggest uh, jumping on to Rafi Fuddy Duddy and you'll find Rafi the Gopnik dog. All right. Now we've got that out of the way. I think it's time to kick off the show. I might have a swig of water. I'm doing this episode early in the morning to beat the Gospodar. As you know, last episode, uh, the Gospodar started the lawnmower literally halfway through the show. And that just, yeah, can absolutely meddle with my mojo. So I thought, you know what? Let's just do the show earlier in the morning when. Uh, it would be socially irresponsible for a hearth and home house proud middle-aged gentleman to mow his lawns or use a leaf blower. So it is early. It is early. Uh, the kookaburras have just announced the morning has started and I am here. So hopefully uh, we are going to have a good episode. We never know until we get to the end of the Urban Property Investor whether it was worthwhile but uh, we're going to try because us property investors, we're a, we're a tough bunch and we love stuff. We love hearing about things and we've always got so many different questions. I think you could write maybe 50,000 questions on real estate. There is so much to cover. So the first questions come, on, come in. This one is from Niall P. Yes, we're not going to shout out your surname. 
Um, I think I did that once and, and it mortally offended someone. So I am just using the uh, capital letter of your last name, the first letter of your last name. So where do I think, see the Sydney market headed? Well, this is an interesting conversation. I want to break this one down more so than just considering the idea that uh, capital growth rate hits a marketplace. Certainly, Sydney has been a bit of a surprise package when it comes to its capital growth performance, certainly over the last uh, 12 months, clocking up some 27% capital growth, which is just incredible. That's obviously a lot of growth which wanted to be released into the market and forever, for whatever reason was, uh, you know, held back. That growth, though, has certainly created, I think, um, a tale of two cities. Sydney today, in my view, is very much uh, a city broken down into regions. And when people sort of ask me about Sydney, I think the question itself needs to be perhaps reframed. Sydney, for example, to me, is your quintessential uh, blue ribbon parts of Sydney, really that inner and middle ring pocket of Sydney, around the harbour, around the beaches, spreading out lower North Shore, really is uh, the Sydney market you probably see a lot of the media attention with. Of course, Sydney has other markets, Western Sydney, uh, we've got places like Parramatta, Liverpool, Penrith, which are all big areas in their own right. Parramatta, for example, is the sixth largest economy in Australia. Parramatta is a bigger economy than Adelaide. So with that in mind, I think when we are asking questions about Sydney, we need to probably group it into dynamics, Sydney and Western Sydney. And obviously, they are now really two quintessential places. They are actually different marketplaces. They are interlinked. However, they are growing in different dynamics. Western Sydney, if you like, is more of an emerging marketplace. Uh, Sydney itself is more a wealth marketplace, a well-trodden, you know, almost 200-year-old uh, place of business and certainly uh, compounding wealth. And even in the most recent, you know, horrible lockdown that Sydney side has had to go through, you, you saw the difference in even policing. You know, Western Sydney was uh, almost policed more heavily than certainly uh, places like Sydney, uh, Bondi, Manly, where really it was a bit of a joke, the lockdown. Um, people were fundamentally doing whatever they wanted. And so I think when we tackle this big question around Sydney, I think the first conversation we need to have is Sydney is really two major metropolises. It really spatially is Western Sydney and Sydney. And uh, for a lot of property investors, due to the extremism of property values in Sydney, not Western Sydney, buying real estate in that marketplace is a very, very difficult thing for most property investors to do. Not impossible, but very, very difficult. Your really entry level is a million dollars. Um, and that would be for an apartment. Your housing market is well over uh, really two and a half to three million dollars to get into Sydney itself. And so um, it is uh, is what it is. And I think what I am seeing when it comes to Sydney is the idea of Sydney being an alpha city. An alpha city is a city like a London, a New York. These places, and particularly more the brand suburbs or brand hoods inside of alpha cities, absolutely 
skyrocket in value. So if you could get into Alpha Sydney, would I recommend doing it? Absolutely. Because I always teach the pre- the uh, the idea that as a property investor, we've actually got four types of property markets we can enter. We can enter an affordable marketplace, which is where most property investors try and shop within. They look for a property which mathematically works, which is affordable, which doesn't you know, erode their back pocket and they hope that real estate grows in value and becomes aspirational. So uh, there are really two ways an affordable property can go. One, it can fall into really a disinvestment zone or the second way it can go into an aspirational zone. Affordability can only go up or it can only go down. So inequality, disinvestment is where you do not want to end up when it comes to owning an affordable property. In other words, it never takes off and it just goes backwards. The other way, of course, is that real estate goes forwards and becomes aspirational. And really there is this idea of uh, people wanting those assets in those suburbs. Then, of course, you have the prestige market and every city has a prestige zone, a blue ribbon dress circle, if you like, where real estate um, and rich people buy that real estate. And Sydney really is the first city in Australia which has now a fifth element to the prestige or or the, the money market, if you like, which is alpha. And it's even greater than prestige. Now, it's almost like now prestige real estate, if you like, is affordable, but uh, And the fact that alpha money is coming to the city almost drives up the prestige market because all of a sudden you're getting, um, you know, billionaires from across the world, multimillionaires from across the world realize that real estate is uh, a bit of a, a sport. Real estate is something that global funds can control real estate is almost something that uh, with the trillions of dollars floating around the world, you know, owning A-grade pockets of our alpha city are just now is now a thing, right? And, you know, I look in some precincts that I know quite well and I look on RP data as to whom owns the real estate, CoreLogic, And a lot of it is funds, like a lot of it is international money funds buying up prestige real estate. And of course, they're not budgeting uh, on mortgages. They're literally paying cash to push that alpha market up. And we've seen this in places like London where, you know, today, you know, an apartment, you know, in near Hyde Park, you know, can sell for $100 million. The prestige market or the money market that Alpha Cities bring is just unbelievable. And we're at that point. And of course, because Sydney is now an Alpha City, it actually creates a lot of inequality. In other words, Sydney ciders actually can't keep up with the Alpha dynamic of the city itself. And because a lot of Sydney ciders can't keep up with the alpha because of the international, um, you know, brand it is and the money from across the globe that filters into Sydney, it uh, almost creates internalised refugees. And of course, again, Other cities in Australia do not get this alpha effect. Even Melbourne does not get the alpha effect at this point. But it is the next city really highly ranked to do so. I think for property investors, if you can own a piece of Melbourne or Sydney, like quintessential Melbourne and quintessential Sydney, really is worthwhile because generally our monetary policy is really driven around those two cities. Uh, Our secondary cities like Brisbane and Perth 
um, which are known as new world cities, don't necessarily lead money policy. Money policy is definitely um, highly, highly geared around Sydney and Melbourne. So uh, you got to get a piece of them if you can. Western Sydney is a different category to the idea of where Sydney is headed. Um, as I as I allude to, you know, it is great to buy affordable properties. A lot of Western Sydney will fall into inequality, into disinvestment. Really what that ultimately is, is people can barely afford to own the assets in the market, let alone renovate them, let alone do them up. And of course, when owners or landlords struggle to uh, just pay the bills, real estate generally goes down in its look and its appeal. And all of a sudden you get this concept of disinvestment, which um, is a thing in real estate, right? So Alpha Sydney, really, particularly in some of the brand hoods, is absolutely going to continue to be more and more and more expensive. And, you know, in economics, it's kind of often referred to as a, as extremistan, like Pakistan, but extremistan. And you're seeing that in Sydney where almost you start to see extremes whereby um, the people of Sydney are almost – now rejecting mediocrity. Extremistan is something where a lot of cities you start to see, you know, huge, the world's tallest buildings and six-star luxury hotels, like five stars, not good enough. And, you know, recently, uh, Jamie Packer's um, uh, Barangaroo Tower just won uh, the world's best, basically, building. And, you know, having stayed in the building, I can tell you it is very, very six-star, very, very opulent. And of course, when it comes to Alpha Sydney, Alpha Sydney is rejecting mediocre uh, stand, Um, extremist stand versus mediocre stand. So the point of the conversation when it comes to Sydney is if you can get into extremist stand real estate, you can do very, very well out of it because the extremes, again, are just exponential amounts of wealth very, very quickly. Real estate goes up in the millions, not the thousands. And as such, um, getting into a more extreme pocket of Sydney or even Melbourne is a very, very wise thing to do. However, you're going to need a lot of money. And as for Western Sydney... I think Western Sydney has uh, almost been a place where people who can't, um, I guess, afford extremistan have gone typically to Western Sydney. Now, Western Sydney is, is rather expensive. And if anything, people have filtered through coronavirus and through the great spatial transformation of society to really going, you know what, maybe Southeast Queensland's a better option. Um, you don't really have to go further than Southeast Queensland these days to go, well, how do I link that Sydney is so expensive? Where will the people go if they, you know, are challenged to living in a nice part of Sydney? Um, you know, I would not go past Southeast Queensland. I think it is the easiest market to measure. You know, are people flooding into Orange? Yes. Will they stay in Orange? I don't know. Uh, but certainly I think when it is measured against, you know, perhaps moving to Brisbane, you are seeing real figures and the market there is so gluey, like it will glue people to that lifestyle. So um, the reality is, Western Sydney, what are my thoughts around it? Uh, my thoughts around Western Sydney is it is not an equitable market. Um, you know, if prices were to double in Western Sydney again, like people couldn't afford to live in Western Sydney. The wage growth versus the property values is is too extreme. Um, and as such, I think mortgage stress is, is a real probability in that marketplace. And of course, um, if you know, 
rates or the cost to own real estate change in one way, uh, all of a sudden that marketplace is probably less buoyant than certainly a place like Brisbane or Perth or Adelaide where the affordability versus wages is is a lot uh, more equitable. So I see Western Sydney as, as a little bit of a danger marketplace, but I certainly see Alpha Sydney as an incredible place. Like it is it has gone beyond prestige to the point where the money to be made in that marketplace is um, is incredible. So I think we tackled the Sydney conversation. I hope we did. Uh, in simple terms, Sydney's got a prediction of, uh, I believe, from Westpac Bank of into 2022 doing uh, something like a 7% growth off the back of 27%. So... Yes, but it runs deeper than that. And that is uh, certainly what I believe around real estate. Wow, that's one question and we're 20 minutes into the show. I hope you're playing this double speed. I don't know if we're going to get through all the questions today. Um, I thought I could be pumping them out and I've taken 20 minutes to answer one question. I don't know, maybe we're going to have to turn this into a two-part series or something. We'll see how we go. We'll see how we go. Uh, The next question has come in from Irene. Yes, Irene. How do I see the ESG movement affecting real estate? The ESG movement. Wow. Well, this is is a big, big question. Obviously, um, probably around when this show is airing, uh, where, where we've got the big climate summit over in the United Kingdom, um, the idea of real estate heading towards a very environmentally friendly space is a real thing in my world. Um, I do see the idea of the ESG movement uh, certainly coming into real estate. And of course, if anyone doesn't know what uh, the ESG movement is, it is uh, fundamentally the idea that there is going to be stronger governance around the environment and, of course, the social impact of certain decisions. And the idea that, for example, to create real estate, if um, there is more green initiatives around real estate, which is a big carbon emitter, that the supply chain of real estate almost needs to be looked into to make sure that it is environmentally not impacting the world. So the idea of ESGs, if you like, is that governments around the world are starting to question how things are created and how things are run. And all of a sudden, for many property investors, this puts them in a place where what does what does the ESG space actually mean for them as a property investor? Now, if you think of things like uh, coal, uh, which of course is a bit of a dirty word these days in the environmental space, but Australia is a land, if you like, of iron ore and coal. Um, so the conversations, certainly the government here has in Australia is very different to, for example, the government of Germany, whereby really Germany is a a technical and manufacturing uh, nation and as such its jobs are more based around engineering and, of course, creating things, manufacturing things. They produce, you know, cars and, um, you know, really quality goods Here in Australia, we kind of run, I guess, a financial space of of smart economics, but we're also very, very huge when it comes to being the world's quarry. We have uh, most of the good coking coal and we have uh, certainly the best iron ore deposits in the world. And of course, the world, if you like, is run via steel. And to make steel, you fundamentally need good coking coal and you need good iron ore. And the ESG movement, if you like, 
is designed around uh, governments, but also major Fortune 500 companies and also superannuation and pension funds being very ethical with where they deposit money and how they lend money. And so, for example, it is very uncommon today for um, a major fund to want to fund a new coal project because obviously coal is the biggest, uh, one of the biggest challenges to the environment. So the ESG movement basically is this kind of concept where governments around the world are thinking, well, what are the ramifications of environmental and social impacts of an industry and where, and as such, the money going into that industry is also questioning whether, you know, the industry itself needs to clean up. So, what does that do, for example, to coal prices? Well, you know, right now coal prices are uh, skyrocketed, right? And what fundamentally it does is it almost um, creates a higher price because there's going to be less production of a certain thing. And so with coal, uh, there, there is not going to be huge amounts of more coal mines that are created um, into the future across the globe. So the coal mines that exist suddenly become more and more valuable. And recently, I mean, you saw, for example, I don't know if anyone was watching the news, but Twiggy Forrester, the great billionaire iron ore magnate from Western Australia, comes over to the eastern states and uh, has been backing, for example, um, hydro hydro uh, schemes, which are basically green efficient schemes where he is now investing in the ESG movement. And I think we can learn that that is a market mover. When an iron ore billionaire goes, well, uh, you know, we need to make a shift here to the green economy and I will put uh, – you know, Twiggy Forrester's money into the green economy, which is the polar opposite to the iron ore economy, um, you know, you're starting to see that the pieces are starting to come together. The players are starting to manoeuvre into the marketplace. So, of course, what does this mean for real estate? This is uh, a big conversation and I've certainly been um, very vocal around uh, some of the environmental challenges that real estate has as a thing and that, you know, real estate throws out around 13% of all carbon problems here in Australia. So it is a big, big, big uh, depository of challenges to the world. Obviously, energy is fundamentally used in heating and cooling homes and, of course, constructing homes and the construction space is a, is a big, big part of it. So attitudes are changing. And I think when it comes to what it looks like for property investors, and, and this is something that, you know, I, I think we've just got to have in our medium-term radar that by 2030, you know, for example, England is going to only have electric cars. Diesel and petrol cars are, uh, you know, going to be scrapped. Um, today, one out of every five cars rolling off a German production line is electric or hybrid. So the world is, is headed towards this place. Um, Australia is a laggard and we are a laggard because we sell iron ore and coking coal. So no matter what uh, we think here in Australia around the idea of the ESG movement, it's always going to be slower, the uptake here compared to, for example, Europe or other countries across the globe in the, certainly in the uh, Western world. And certainly, you know, if you go to places like Dubai, you know, they're market leaders when it comes to the ESG movement. They are basically creating entire cities that are run, um, you know, carbon neutral 
basically. So we are laggards and I understand why because obviously um, our jobs, if you like, are very much connected to the idea of um, some of the old economy. It would be great to see Australia, certainly in my personal view, just start to evolve into this space, take all that know-how we've got through great companies like Rio Tinto, BHP, um, you know, Twiggy Forrester's companies and do what Twiggy Forrester is saying is blend the worlds, bring in the green and um, certainly, you know, bring through that ESG space. But how does it relate to you as a property investor? This is the this is the interesting part, and certainly within commercial today, um, commercial buildings are graded basically on their energy efficiency. So, for example, you know Westpac would not rent a four star energy efficient building; they wouldn't do it. Um, they may have some leases on some current stock, but moving forward, really the big, big companies of the world are all going sustainable. And so the real estate, which is most sustainable, is certainly the most attractive at the moment. And you are, you are seeing that with the transformation, certainly in the office marketplace, the retail marketplace, um, some of these initiatives are, are starting to unfold off the back of the environmental um, part of the ESG space uh sounds like msg doesn't it the old uh the old msg used to go on the old chinese food and we'd um we'd all be tucking into food for hours wouldn't we and then they i think outlawed the msg um so how does this affect you as a property investor well really a, a couple of ways firstly for example like coal real estate is actually getting harder and harder for developers and builders to produce because of the thermal and uh, green star rating new real estate has to adapt to to come into the marketplace. So we're at a roughly a natter score of around a six at the moment, but the evolution of that is to get to a seven. So seven star green efficiency rated dwellings coming to marketplace. In fact, today uh, you can get a home loan cheaper if you can prove that you have a seven star efficient property uh, that you own. And so that is amazing. The fact that you can borrow money at half a percent less Today, right now, if you own a seven-star efficient home or dwelling um, is a real thing. And it's certainly on my radar for many of my property investors where we're just exploring, well, um, is it actually mathematically better as an investment to go seven-star so you can save literally a bucket load of cash over the lifetime of the loan product and again uh, it's a it's a real thing so many many funders uh, influencing the ESG movement by uh, basically you know uh, influencing the interest rate again where does this sit with property investors um, how do I see it unfolding well as you know negative gearing is really here to stay um, we saw the Labor Party in the 2019 election, Bill Shorten, um, you know, choke at the end. The reason was a lot of that had to do with messing with the investment tax system, um, certainly with the property people, the negative gearing tax system. And as such, uh, I think most people, Political parties do not want to kick that football down the road anytime soon. So, what do I see happening with the ESG movement? I see potentially two pockets of uh, problems for property investors tax and insurance. Now, I personally think that uh, down the track, maybe five, six years from now, a property which perhaps scores lower than a five when it comes to its energy rating, 
will get a tax. It'll get a carbon tax. And properties that score over a five will, you know, potentially won't. Or there will be some sort of logic around the idea of um, the scoring of carbon. And again, real estate is a big uh, carbon producer. Um, I think it will be pointed towards property investors. I don't think homeowners will suffer the carbon tax, if you like, uh, but I certainly see property investors that do not own thermally efficient assets into the future um, basically paying a carbon a carbon offset. And as such, um, you know, that could look like a couple of thousand dollars extra a year for, um, for that ownership. And uh, again, I think why scrap negative gearing when you can just introduce a tax, which actually by the mainstream of society is something that everyone wants. Everyone wants to be, uh, you know, I guess carbon neutral and that comes at a cost. And this is again where I think a lot of uh, what I call, you know, Chardonnay millionaires love having a shardy, um, talking shit at a barbecue and, you know, uh, the rubber meets the road when you have to actually fork out of your own back pocket to pay for this thing. And this is where, you know, the world's actually actually headed towards. Certainly inside of my business model, uh, we are now designing our company to, to basically have no uh, ESG issues. Um, so we're offsetting everything we do, every property we work on. We, we fundamentally donate money to the big scrub in, uh, in the Byron hinterland to basically plant more trees to, to, again, offset the work we do inside of real estate. So into the future, what do I see? I see definitely a carbon tax on property investment for the wrong property investments. And to give you a context, an older property will probably score a thermal efficiency rating of around a two, um, a property which was perhaps designed in the last 10 years, um, you know, a thermal rating of around 5.5 and properties which are coming to market now-ish and, you know, in the not so distant future in the next two to three years, will score like a 6.5 to a 7.5. So, a 30-year-old property is a two and a property today is like a, a 6.5 to a seven. So it's a big, big difference. And I think the government will use this to almost encourage people into the new construction market by getting a tax offset because obviously for the government, socially, they want more properties produced. Um, they want more properties produced because that obviously creates roofs over people's heads and that it sort of government has always tried to, to use supply to solve the other big challenge within the ESG space, which is the social challenge of real estate. And real estate today is making a lot of refugees. As we, as we know, I mean, as I talked about in Sydney, Sydney is now an alpha city. If you're not capable of keeping up with multi-millionaires, um, which, you know, is, is, you know it's, it's a tough thing to do, um, you know, you're spat out, right? So real estate in an alpha city, for example, like Sydney, almost creates a social problem because of the sheer cost to get into the city. And, you know, you, you're seeing all of a sudden, you know, uh, new marketplaces across really Australia almost become socially challenged because of the price um, gap. Now, even a city as, you know, beautiful and remote as Hobart today is ridiculously expensive. Uh, Brisbane is booming. It will become expensive. Um, Melbourne already, 
you know, is is fairly well expensive. So again, what socially is unfolding through not only the environment, but because of the extreme price index of real estate is a future social housing problem. In other words, those who earn the le- least um, may not have anywhere to live because in uh, capitalism, we love extremistan. We don't like uh, mediocreistan. We all are striving to be wealthier and better. And all that does is almost create a challenge for suitability for certain people in society to keep up with the Joneses. And of course, that creates all sorts of social problems. And I uh, in uh, one of my recent episodes, which I talked about, you know, some challenges with some people I know now being ostracized from the community because of the cost to keep up with the Joneses. And we've seen this in many cities across the world when they turn alpha, the social problems start to unfold. And the reality is a lot of Australia today is certainly less affordable than it was, say, two years ago. Um, so for me, I think um, I think I'd say for me way too much, don't I? For me, for me, um, I need a new word. But social, the social part of the challenge of the ESG movement is a thing. Certainly what governments have relied on in past eras is property investors providing properties to the marketplace. Do I see that being a long-term trend that will continue? Uh, No, is the short answer to that. And I've mentioned this in the past before. By 2030, I don't think the primary source of rental properties coming into the rental market will be mum and dad property investors borrowing equity from their home, taking the risk to go and buy a rental property um, to rent out to someone. I certainly see the biggest challenge with what has unfolded off the back of the alpha, you know, price exchange, which is occurring um, and prices running away is that a lot of people who own homes have equity in them, but they're under an equity lock. In other words, they can't actually borrow the equity because they can't afford it. And when you're paying too much, you know, a high price for real estate, um, that's that. It is what it is. You 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 fundamentally can't keep borrowing and borrowing if you don't have the income to service it. And this is why. Quite often in property investment, you know, investment advisors and buyers agents will use diversification strategies to diversify assets because of the yield that real estate brings. And of course, um, you know, one of the the tricks to quite often building a property portfolio is to is to um, use the rental property or the rents to to uh, help finance acquiring more assets. But, you know, can that go forever? Um, you know, in when I started property investing, it was very common for people, you know, to try and aim as high as possible to end up with 20, 30, 30 properties. Um, today, you know, three or four is a really, you know, great number. That's so impressive considering the prices for quality assets today. So the social challenges I see with real estate, without question, won't be solved by property investors. It will be solved, I think, uh, by the build-to-rent movement. And of course, the build-to-rent movement is the movement where today, again, these huge companies and monetary funds and pension funds and Canadian superannuation funds are buying real estate at a global level, whether that alpha real estate in the prestige market or whether that's actually development sites and looking to bring into the rental market really affordable product. And when I say affordable product, it is designed generally to be more in line with like a boarding house 
Built to rent is really like a boarding house. You're seeing, you know, 25 square meter apartments that are being built. They're not designed to be resold. The zoning permits for them are, you know, basically clustered housing. And, you know, when you look at the imagery of the product itself, it is not comparable to what typically owner occupiers want. But because it is 25 square meters or small, um, mathematically, it works, right? It works for the developer and it works certainly for the tenant who spends, you know, $220 renting the property as opposed to, um, as opposed to you know, renting more space and having to come up with $500 a week. So it's, it's uh, I see certainly for um, many people in the less skilled part of the economy, this is where they're going to drift into. And again, the reason you're starting to see these pop up is, you know, for someone who's maybe, I don't know, a sandwich hand working in the city, um, instead of, you know, for that person who maybe, you know, isn't yet married, isn't sort of got two incomes to fend for themselves, they, are, they, they don't earn a lot of money and for them, they really just need a dormitory situation to, to sleep in close to where they work. And of course, um, this, is, this is the concept. So, you know, planning is a, a big part of the social challenges here in Australia. And I think the ESG movement, if you like, going back to coal, um, is going to actually make properties more expensive because... The ability to produce more coal mines makes coal more expensive. The ability to produce more real estate haphazardly is absolutely just going to push the value of real estate up. And of course, that in itself is going to to be, you know, the oxymoron, if that's the way to say that word, of this whole conversation. But without question, the build to rent movement is going to be a thing. And I can see why. Like, let me ask you this question. If capital growth was not a thing and I could produce properties that you could buy for, say, $125,000 that rent for $250 a week and you could get a loan on them, would you buy them? And if capital growth wasn't a thing, you just wanted the income from the asset, would you uh, would you buy them? And this is the build to rent movement. Uh, and the short answer is for people who want a yield and cash flow, they surely would buy them. Because again, if an asset was 25 square meters, um, it was easy to build because it's small. Um, you're basically the major cost of the asset is is in the build, which is the kitchen and the bathroom. You're in it for 125. It rents for 250. You know, you'd probably buy five or six of them, right? And that is is where this is going for REITs, real estate investment trusts, or funds, or pension funds. And of course, the challenge with that is not designed to um almost compete with the skilled economy the skilled economy the guys working for Atlassian in Sydney they're building a billion dollar um you know tower in the city you know they're earning two three hundred thousand dollars a year they don't need the 25 square meter apartment to live in but people in society do and this is again the big um, challenge with the ESG movement is bringing in social housing to accommodate people who can least afford it. Um, so where do I see, going back uh, to the original question, where do I see the ESG movement? I see future taxes. I see future insurance challenges for people with less thermally efficient assets. I see taxes, a carbon tax on real estate, which is less thermally efficient. I see 
um, almost like carbon offsets for real estate, which scores a thermal rating, which is um, decent. Um, that is definitely the environmental space I'm thinking is going to happen. Now, I could be wrong. I'm just throwing it out there again. Just consider me giving you a briefing. This is my briefing. I'm giving you the briefing. This is what I think is coming. And this is why I'm very, very uh, cognizant of when I buy real estate, looking for a fairly good thermally efficient score because the reality is, you know, we're gonna we're going into the uh, era of green economics. And of course, you know, that is what governments are signing up for. And when governments are signing up for that, they have to go and do something about it. And that is the reality of the situation we find ourselves in. Um, do I think the ESG movement is going to create more supply of real estate? It's going to get harder. And just like the challenge you're going to see with the uh, investment from major companies into um, real estate to produce more real estate is, again, the, the challenge is the better you build these properties, um, you know, the slower that process fundamentally is because of the planning guidelines to do it. And, again, it makes a lot of sites just less effective to to create. You know, when you've got to take into consideration you know, wind tunnels and, um, you know, the the solar rating and the green landscaping of the creation of the of development, the ones that get created are very, very nice. The ones, though, that we don't talk about that are not in the news or all, all the sites that never get to marketplace. So the ESG movement, if you like, is going to push real estate values up but it, it will definitely, I think, create an economy of carbon tax on uh, future real estate that is just, you know, let's face it, not doing anything good for the planet. So that's the way it is. And for the Chardonnay, uh, what I call, you know, um, Chardonnay uh, party goers who have a couple of properties and love talking about this stuff um, but never doing anything, Hey, the bills are going to be in the post, so you'll be happy. Um, wow, 51 minutes and I am, I've only done two questions. So that's a failure. I had about nine questions to get through. Um, wow, well, I think I should stop and maybe just park the conversation and maybe next week I'll tackle some more. What a failure. What a, uh, as I said, when we start the episode, we never know if we're going to succeed until the end. Um, I don't know if it's a success or a failure, but it is what it is. Hey, thanks for tuning in to the Urban Property Investor. I will catch you next week on another episode. Thanks for tuning in to the Urban Property Investor. To never miss an episode, make sure you subscribe to the podcast on your favorite app or on YouTube. I would love it if you could give the show a rating and share it with your friends and family. In between episodes, you can always keep in touch with me by connecting on social media over Facebook, Instagram, or LinkedIn. Until we meet again on the next episode of the Urban Property Investor, take care and bye for now.